Well, let me tell you a little bit about Jake. The first time I, I met Jake was actually out at Rich's parents' uh, house, and we were hanging out out there. And I think Rich was the one that told me, he said, yeah, he was the stunt double for uh, Alex Baldwin. And I, and I believed him. <laughs> I was like, that is so cool, <laughs> you know. And, you know, of course, Jake just went along with it. So, uh, But we're, we're just excited that Jake is here. Jake was on staff. For Some of you know who are at CPC. He was a Connections pastor there uh, a while ago, and uh, now he's a full-time dad staying home with uh, Dylan and Nora and Evan, and uh, they are great. In fact, when we got together for coffee, Evan came along with us, and, and he, he gave you most of the ideas, I'm pretty sure, about what to talk about today. So um, we, we are excited. So originally, Jake is from Chicago. Uh, he, he tells me he still can do the Super Bowl shuffle. Uh, he remembers that, so uh, he's got all those things. Uh, he did hang out with Michael Jordan once, or was it more than once? I don't know. He, he, they're good friends. They're really close, tight. So, anyway, um, but we're just we're just pumped that Jake is here, and I think he's got some great great stuff for us. So, would you help me welcome Jake Kirshner right there? Give it up for him. Thanks, Pete. Can I steal one of these? This one. I'm stealing this one. I didn't really ask for permission. I was more sane. Well, good morning. Hey, before we uh, jump into some of the stories and stuff, I thought it'd be fun for you to share with the person next to you, how many times do you think you check the time every day? So think about that for a second. How many times do you think you check the time every day? Come up with a number, find somebody next to you, share that number, uh, and then debate a little bit. I want you to debate a little bit. Like, no, that can't be right. It's more than that for you. Or maybe it's less than that. Or here's why this number. So go ahead. Think about it and then discuss. Everybody, everybody have a good discussion? Good debate? How, how many of you came up with uh, just like once an hour? You're like, oh, I just check it once an hour. Anybody just only once an hour? And they're like, no way. That didn't happen. Uh, anybody over, you think over 50? Over 100? Over 150 times. What's the highest number we got here? Anybody over 200? We said 200. 200. Just kind of like, you thought about the day. It's on the computer. It's on the computer. It's on your phone. Anybody ever check their phone to see what time it was? And then you got a text message, and you check the text message, you put your phone down, and then you're like, what time is it? You didn't even look at the time, right? Or maybe you looked at it, and you totally forgot. And this is what happens to us. And you start your day off, and you're like, okay, i got to wake up. You check the time. Some of us are hit snooze. Some of us hit snooze more than others. And so you've already checked the time like four or five times before you're even up. And then you're getting ready, and you check the time because you've got to get ready and make sure that you're going to get out the door on time. And you get out, and you start the car, and you check the time. I, don't, I check the, car, the time when I start the car. I don't know why. Do you, does anybody else do this? Like, I look at the clock as if that determines something in that moment, like... And then I'm checking it as, as I'm going somewhere. You're looking, if you're stuck in traffic, you're checking, you're checking, you're checking. You pull into the, the parking lot if you're going to work or school, you check again. You, I mean, we're just constantly checking. I don't know what it is. Nobody could actually come up with a number, how many times. I, I, they did do a study that um, uh, certain age groups, I'm not going to call any age group out or anything, look at their phones uh, up to 150 times an hour. And that literally... There's very few people that can go more than five minutes without looking at their phone during the day. Like, not just like, oh, you can't go without five minutes. No, like, literally can't do it. And you think about the time that goes around this. It, time's an interesting thing. We talk a lot about time in different ways. Think about the ways we talk about time. Time is money. 
It's a race against time. There are serious things about time. We're racing against it. I don't even have time to breathe. That's an interesting saying. <laughs> really, really run out of time. We live on borrowed time. We make up for lost time. We're always pressed for time. And we can go on and on. Time, it's like we talk about it as if our lives run and are ruled by the clock. Actually, I think that's true. Our lives do run and are ruled by the clock. At least I, I know often it is for me. I think back to the first time I had to answer the question, what do you want to do when you grow up? Ever since I had an answer to that question, I had begun to measure the significance and value and worth of my life. It's going to be the timeline of my life up here if you're wondering. This is not a limbo or not. <laughs> I've measured the significance and meaning and worth of my life by how much I can effectively and efficiently squeeze stuff and experiences and activities and achievements into the timeline of my life. Uh, the first answer I ever had that it was like a serious answer, not like I want to be an astronaut or anything like that. The first answer I had for what do you want to do when you grow up was I wanted to be an artist. I had to dig deep in some archives for this. This is one of the drawings I did. I thought, well, you know, I want to be an artist. That's what I want to do. And then my parents said, you can't make money doing that. Or said it's going to be awfully hard for you to make money doing that. This was in the time before like computer graphic stuff was really big, and so it was like the starving artist was like the real thing. And so I didn't know that you could maybe make money in that. So I said, okay, I'm not going to be an artist. I'm going to be an architect. But everything then from that point on, when I started talking about what I wanted to do with my life, everything became about squeezing as much as I could to make that thing happen, right? So I started going to school. And in high school, i I got to dig deep in here. Here we go. In high school, I had to do activities, right? You, you can't just go through school. If you want to be an architect, you're going to have to go to college, and to go to college, you got to have to get good grades, and to get good grades, you can't just get good grades. You got to have activities, you got to have leadership. So I was a gymnast in high school, uh, and, and I actually got to be the captain of the, the, the gymnastics team. So we went to state. This is, um, I don't remember, fifth place at state as a team. Okay. We went to state, and so we, there's a big deal. We've achieved some stuff, and that's going to help me uh, Maybe not do the art thing, but some creative architecture thing so I can get into school. And then, you know, I finally did, you know, graduate. I, I don't know how I found this stuff, I'll be honest. This is my high school diploma. I mean, I have it in this nice thing, like I, I keep it really close, <laughs> close to me. But, but you know, here's, here's, I graduated. I made it. And so I, I have some achievements, and I'm trying to squeeze as much as I can in there. And then in, in college, you start thinking like, well, you know, eventually, I'm going to end up getting a job, and I'm going to have a career, and, but I, I want a family. You know, I'd like to have a wife. And so I met somebody. Her name's Angela. And so, you know, we got engaged. And so, and then there was all sorts of planning, and everything had to happen with the wedding. And, okay, but now we're going to get serious about life. And then we start squeezing more into that, because now she's got her career, and I got my career. And we're trying to work towards that career. Speaking of careers, you know, hey, what, I did ministry, Pete said, but, but you know, I'm here. I'm, I'm getting to use some of the things I learned in school, because the architecture thing didn't work out. I don't know if you noticed. Um, <laughs> And so life took a different trajectory, but it still was squeezed with lots of achievements and stuff and things that I needed to get done and things that needed to be accomplished. And I tried to find meaning and value and significance 
in these things in my life that I was being told, well, if you, just, if you get enough in there, if you squeeze enough on this timeline, your life's going to be filled. And, and I'll talk for me, and, and you can talk for you, but it seems like no matter how much I try to squeeze into the timeline, it's never quite fulfilling. It, uh, there's a song that my mom used to play when we cleaned our house. Oh, I got to hang up this picture too because I forgot about this one. Because once you get married, you start having kids, right? You, you hope to. And you, and you start thinking about, okay, but now I want to make sure that they have significance and meaning so they got to get into a good school. And so they better start doing sports too. And so, you know, let's get them in, in different sports and we'll run them around We'll make sure that they're they're cute. I, I, you know, you got to put kids up that are cute, and luckily I have cute ones. I don't put the picture up of the one that's not cute. <laughs> I'm just kidding. They're all cute. I have, three, I have three. But man, is my life busy. I remember the song that my mom used to play. Uh, she was into country music. I wasn't into country music. I think this is country, Alabama. It sounds country, right? And this song would play while we would clean the house, which I don't know if she was trying to, like, torture us or what the deal was, but it, it was like, I'm in a hurry to get things done. You know the song? It's my best country impersonation I'm going to do, right? <laughs> I rush and rush until life's no fun. You know this song? Have you heard it? I can't remember the next, the next line. I think it's like, uh, all I really got to do is live and die Well, I'm in a hurry and don't know why. Right? That's the song. And that song has stuck with me this whole time that I've been working on this talk. It's just a, I'm in a hurry to get things. And just all the time, my kids are like, Dad, why are you singing this song? Doing the dishes. Because that's what it seems like life is about. Let's try to find and squeeze and rush and rush. And sometimes it doesn't feel that fun. I mean, sometimes it does feel fun. And there's a part of it that's like, well, it is fun. It's fun to watch my kids do this. So that's meaningful. And I'm not saying it's not meaningful. But boy, does it seem like there's a lot that we're trying to squeeze in. There's a movie with Steve Martin. It's called Parenthood. Some of you are like, Parenthood, Jake, you're not old enough to remember Parenthood. And you're right. <laughs> I was five. I just got a great memory. I don't know how old I was, honestly. I do remember the movie. Steve Martin's in this argument with his wife because he's kind of like trying to, he's having like this crisis and he's, he's adjusted everything in his life because he's feeling this squeeze. And he's trying to make adjustments because it's not quite working out the way he thought it was. So he's like, okay, I'm going to switch this with my job. I'm going to start coaching baseball because my son in Little League, he's not doing as well as I wish he was doing or needs to do or I don't know, something's maybe wrong with him. And he's kind of losing it. And he and his wife are having this conversation. He's like, there's so many things I got to get done. I got to run over here. I got to change the oil. I got to go. We got to do this tomorrow. And then we got to get him to baseball. And we got to get him over here. And then I got to go here. And his wife was like, you just need to stop and talk for a minute. He said, no, I can't. I got to go to baseball practice. I got to go coach. And she says, do you really have to? And he says, my whole life is have to. And I don't think that is just about parenthood. I don't think that's just about adulting. I think that's about the way we try to find significance and meaning and purpose in our lives. There's another song you guys are song experts, it sounded like earlier, so this fits. 
There's another song that plays on the radio a lot that I hear that I really like. It's by Rob Thomas. He says, I'm not afraid of, of getting older because it's one less day. I'm not going to sing that one. It's one less day of dying young. See, I think it's maybe not as dramatic, but the sentiment is the same. Right? If I can just get a little bit more time, a little bit more things, if I can make it to retirement. I didn't put my retirement stuff up here. Does anybody have a wad of cash I can use? <laughs> not for this. I mean, just in general, like if you have it. See, for me, I, I think this life is chronic. It's a chronic life. And I don't just mean that in like an illness kind of way. The way the Bible talks about time, there's a couple different ways, but one of the ways that, that we learn about time is it's this chronological way of life. That's one way we experience it. That's the way we experience it. Chronic, chronological. It's this squeezed, rushed to rush, have to life. And it just doesn't seem to deliver what we think it's going to deliver. And I think all of us have a sense of, is, isn't there more than this? And the good news is there is more than this because Jesus said, I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. I didn't come so you could have the chronic life. I came that you could have the full life, the life that is truly life, the undiminished life. But it doesn't happen in chronic time. It happens on God's time. Song of Solomon, or not Song of Solomon, Solomon, some, one of the wisest. If I talked about Song of Solomon, that'd be a different talk. <laughs> Solomon, who's known as the wisest person, wisest person who ever lived, he, he said in the book of Ecclesiastes, it's all about like this, being meaningless. We labor and we toil and it's all just a breath. It's all just a vapor. It's all just faded. But he also says in there, e eternity has been placed in the hearts of man by God. But God has placed eternity on every one of our hearts. And so we live and we feel this tension that sometimes drives some of this really good stuff in here. It drives it, but maybe in the wrong direction or maybe to the wrong end. And my hope for us this weekend is that we would start to step into and maybe move away from, not to say that this is meaningless, not to say that this didn't matter or the dreams didn't count or the achievements weren't significant or the relationships aren't powerful and meaningful or that doing things that are fun and having a good retirement, not that any of that's bad, but that's not where we're going to try to find our significance and meaning. And to do that, I want to spend some time this weekend, the whole weekend, we're going to talk about the book of Esther I'll talk about the book of Esther. You guys can talk about other things. But <laughs> book of Esther is an interesting story. It happens at the time of what's called the exile for Israel. They're not in the promised land. They're not with the king that they were supposed to have. They're being ruled by this occupying nation. And there's a group of them that aren't back in Jerusalem where some have moved back. They're living in Babylon. They're living in Persia. They're living in different places. This book takes place near the capital of Persia called Susa. And, and Esther is part of that story, but before that part of the story, before any part of that story, it's important to know that the, this is the only book of the Bible that doesn't use God's name. 
doesn't say God in it. And it's really kind of an interesting thought to think, well, wait a second, what's, what's happening here? Why wouldn't the author use God name, God's name? And it's really intentional. It's a brilliant way, I think, to engage the people of the time and I think to engage us. There's a couple things happening throughout the text of, uh, throughout the story of, of Esther. One, one of them is that the things seem really coincidental. There's all these coincidences, there's all these um, ironic reversals that start taking place in the book of Esther. And it's those ironic reversals and those coincidences that the author starts to use to invite us to look for where God might be showing up, to see what God might be up to. And I think that's fitting for us in our culture, isn't it? That we would look at a story that God's not even mentioned. Because it's not like God's mentioned a whole lot in culture. And maybe we do the things that try to engage with what God's up to. We, we, we go to church or we go to studies or we come to camps and we do those things. I'm not saying like our whole culture says God doesn't exist. But by and large, culturally speaking, there's not a whole lot of us thinking like, oh yeah, that was God doing that. Well, that was a God thing. Now, we say it in, in some smaller ways in our life, and we start to recognize it, but not all of us recognize it. Not all of us see it. Not all of us believe it. I think there are some of us who would say, God, where are you? And some of us would say, God, are you even here? Here's, here's the main characters of the story. We have Xerxes. Xerxes is the king. He's, he's the, the party king of Persia. That's Xerxes. Xerxes loves himself a party. There's a party that goes 180 days. I, 180 days. There ain't no party like a Persian party. Persian party don't stop. It just goes. Thank you. That was like, I don't know if people think that's funny. <laughs> At the end of the 180 days, uh, there's an after party. Xerxes is like, hey, hey he, gets his, he gets his bros, he gets his friends. He's like, you guys, just a tight-knit group of people. Everybody else goes home. They're all done. He gets the after party going, and at the after party, he says, uh, you guys, my wife is amazing. Queen, the queen, she's just amazing. I'm going to call her. She's going to come, and she's going to dance for you. So he tells her, he says, come and, dance, come and dance for this after party. He says, wear your crown. It, the implication is that's just wear your crown. That's it. She's like, nope, not having any of it. And so all the, the guys at the after party, they're like, hey, this isn't good for us. You got to get your wife under control. This isn't, this, isn't, this isn't happening. Like, if your wife, the queen, doesn't listen to you, the king, then nobody's going to listen to us. And, you know, he's been partying for over 180 days. He's like, oh, I guess, yeah, let's do something. And he writes a law that says all the, the women have to obey their husbands to the T, do exactly what they say. And then somewhere in there, he offs her. She, she's dead. Like, man, that's not how you thought the party was going to end. That's Xerxes. That's the king that we're dealing with in the story. There's two other characters, Mordecai and Esther. Esther's the main character. Mordecai is her cousin, uncle. Some people say uncle, some people say cousin. Uh, Esther was orphaned when she was young. She lost both her parents. They died. We don't know why she, why she died or why they died. We just know that Mordecai says, yes, I'll, I'll raise her as my own. And so he starts to raise Esther as his own. And so I think that's where we get the uncle part from, although it looks like they're more like cousins. Either way, he decides to take her in. And, and something in that situation, he hears of this, like a beauty pageant of sorts. 
And he says, Esther, you should, you should enter that. You should go for it. And she does, and, and, and this is a, a, another crazy idea from the king and his, his friends that they've come up with, like, well, you've got to replace the queen. Why not have a big, just send them through and you decide. And so Esther walks into the king's presence, and they kind of have to do a 12-month, 12-month preparation to go in front of her. It's like, husbands, you thought your wives took a long time getting ready? Don't complain. 12 months preparation, and she goes in front of him. And by going in front of it, it actually means spend the night. You remember the story, uh, a night with the king? It's not just uh, go in front of and see if you look okay. There's some other things that take place there. But that's the life of Esther. She goes in, and she's chosen. She's more beautiful than anybody else, the, the king thinks. And he says, yeah, this is the one. And so she becomes queen. Everything looks good for Esther, everything looks good for, Morde for Mordecai, until this other character shows up. His name is Haman. Haman's the villain of the story. Haman is like, you know, Aaron Rodgers. I mean, that's, that's so unfair. That was really unfair. I did not plan on saying that. I really didn't. It's really not fair, because, you know, no, I won't go where I was going to go. No. So, no, Haman's really bad. Haman's really, really bad. He gets moved into second command under Xerxes, and he's like, hey, I'm a big deal now because I'm second in command, and Xerxes just likes to party, so I'm kind of in charge. And so he goes around, and he, and he, and he says, you know, uh, Xerxes, you should write another law. Apparently, it's just about asking the king to write laws. You write another law that, that um, anybody who sees me has to bow to me. And by the way, Xerxes is, is seen as divinity. The, the kind of king he is, the kind of way he runs things, he's seen as divinity. And, and so if he's second in command, he's second in command under divinity. He, he, bow. And so he says everybody needs to bow. And so he's going along and he runs into Mordecai. Mordecai doesn't bow. Why, did, why doesn't Mordecai bow? He gets him frustrated, gets him angry. He's like, this isn't okay. And he says, you know, king, you need to, you need to have a, a law that all the Jews are going to be killed on one day. I don't know how he talked the king into this law, but the king says, you know what? Yeah, if there's a problem with a group of people, let's just take care of them. And they roll dice to see what day it's going to be. They roll dice and they say, here's the day. And so the day comes, or not the day comes, but the, the, the edict goes out. Everybody's going to die. I'm going to fast forward real quick because I'm not going to have time to tell this whole story. We've got the whole weekend to talk about it. So this is a spoiler alert. Here's what happens really fast. Esther doesn't have any idea what's going on with Mordecai. Mordecai says, Esther, you need to know what's happening. Esther says, okay, can't do it because I'll get killed. You remember the queen? She's gone. I'm just, you know, I won the beauty pageant. I'm in, but I'm not going to go walk because there's this other law that says if you just show up and try to talk to the king, you're done. Unless he's feeling like he's in a good mood, but the chances are pretty slim. And she says, no, I'm not going to do it. And it goes back and forth, and she, she decides, yes, I'll, I'll do it. And the rest of the story that we'll talk about the rest of this weekend leads to this point of, of the Jews being saved that, saved, that salvation does come for the Jews. Salvation comes through Esther. The, the, the whole uh, Jewish community is saved, not just in that capital city, but all around the empire, all because Esther acted. She moved forward with what was in front of her. And here's where I want to go today. Because it's the most, maybe the famous verse in Esther. And it's a verse that a lot of people put on bumper stickers and 
uh, graduation cards and that kind of stuff. It may sound familiar. It's in chapter 4 of the, of the book. Verse 14. Mordecai is talking to Esther and he says, Who knows whether or not you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Some translations say, come to this position of royalty. Now, the reason I want to talk about this verse is because I think this verse has been used and, and, and is worked in our culture in a way that drives this more than it drives almost anything else. Now think about it for a second. You, you see those words, who knows, but that you've come to royalty position for such a time as this. I like can hear Braveheart music playing in the background or, or uh, what was the Lord of the Rings, we were just hearing that music. Or like Eminem, do you remember the Eminem 8 Mile? Uh, some of you are like, really, Jake, Eminem? I, I remember watching it. I like hear this beat of music in the background. Doom, 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 doom. And he's gonna, it's like this buildup that happens. The, the, the verse that the Eminem actually says, he says, if you had one shot, one opportunity to seize this moment, would you capture, capture it or would you let it slip? And then he goes on to sing, you only have one shot. This opportunity only comes once in a lifetime. Yo. <laughs> when you, th you think about that, that, ver that, that, that kind of thought and that kind of process, it kind of makes us think like, this is it. When we think about time and, and significance in, in, in our life, it's like it's legacy, it's destiny. There's going to be this moment where all of this is going to happen and it's going to make sense and you're going to achieve something and you're going to look back on your life and you're going to be like, yes, it was so meaningful and it all comes down to that one, that one thing I did. Or maybe for someone who's like, I don't know if I'm going to have one of those Esther moments, I just got to do a lot of those things. And so there's a part of us that's driven by this thought of like, I don't want to be on the wrong side of history. I was made for this. What was I made for and am I going to miss it? Then you look back. Verse 14, right before that. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. So if it's all about Esther only having one shot, then what's all this talk about like God will find deliverance from somewhere else? Like which one is it? Is it, is it this is the only opportunity or is, or is God working in a different way? What if, what if it's not Mordecai saying, this is your shot, this is your once in a lifetime? What if Mordecai is saying, Esther, what if God's been at work all along? What if it's not a job about this moment? What if the whole time, since the very beginning, God's been at work? What if he's been right next to you and right next to me? What if all this stuff that we thought was meaningless and insignificant and didn't have purpose, what if God's been a part of it the whole time? See, this is an invitation to a moment where, yes, our activities intersect with God's activities. But it's not an invitation to seize your divine moment as much as it's an invitation to see the divine in every 
moment. Come back to this up here. See, if, if, if our time is like this, this is the chronic life. Now, I want to say God's time is like this because it's the best analogy I could think of. You know, that it's got depth and it's got height to it. And it's fuller. And I think a lot of us think, well, well, I just need one of those to come into my life and it's going to change everything. And yes, one of these times with God, activities God does need to come into our life, but it's not to change our destiny, to change our legacy. It's to reframe and redefine everything. So, so with Esther, she begins to let this moment, I went the wrong way, to let this moment wrap around her life. She begins to intertwine with what God's up to, and we'll see through the rest of this weekend that it's not just this one moment, that there's all these activities that God is up to, activities that God's showing her, hey, this isn't about chronological, God's not a, a, a God of uh, the chronological coincidence, that he's a God of intentional realities, that he's a God of great, loving, best intentions for us. And, and as we weave this around our lives and we weave what God's up to, when it's one moment or many moments, all of a sudden, everything starts to be redefined. And we look towards those moments in our future, and it doesn't matter if it's a milestone moment. It doesn't matter if it's a significant moment. It doesn't matter if we end up doing all the dreams we ever dreamed of and achieved all the things we ever achieved, that all of a sudden, the fullness of God's time is interwoven and in, 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 encapsulating and engaging with us in a way that everything starts to take on new significance. And that it's not just one moment, but that there's multiple moments that we look back and say, the whole time, God was up to something. He was redefining my past. And he was setting me on a trajectory that doesn't really matter what trajectory I was on. Is it going to stay? The trajectory of life, whatever it might be, I'm going to be different no matter what. That God's not trying to step in and say, I'm going to change this part. He said, I'm going to change all of it. That he's not trying to, to get us to figure it out in one moment. But he is trying to get us right. All right. What if God's time isn't about changing the trajectory of your life as much as it's changing the condition of your soul, regardless of the trajectory you go on? What if what God is trying to do is to show you that he's been at work all along and he could be at work all along and he's right there? And he's saying, you can get right. You can get right with me, and you can get right with others, and you can get right with yourself. Because you start to figure out that I'm with you, that I want to be with you, that I am at work. Some of you might be thinking, well, Pete, you said I had till noon, right? <laughs> what time do I go to? It's like warm in here. Anybody else? <laughs> you're like, Jake, you're pacing, and I'm sweating. 
some of you might be thinking, um, well, Jake, she, she rose to this position, and I'm not in that position. I'm not going to have any big things happen. And here's, here's the thing, though, what I, I think this is trying to show us, that she might have this unique position in royalty, but all of us have unique positions. And what if the thing that God's up to in our life, our experiences, our activities, the pain, the hurts, the things that didn't make sense, the things that do make sense, the things that you, you work on, what if God's got you in a unique position? Not just so that he could work through you, but so that he can work in you. He wants to do both. It was early fall uh, when I got a text from my dad. This is years ago. I got a text from my dad. I, I think Dylan was uh, the only one born at the time. Or, and it's, all it said was, um, Robin wants to get a hold of you. So Robin's my biological mother. She didn't usually want to get a hold of me. She usually disappeared. She was off the scene. She was an alcoholic. She left when I was young. All sorts of things. Robin's trying to get a hold of you. I thought, okay, what's her number? So I called her. We start talking. And as typically had been the case, she was in tears and she said, I'm so sorry. I want, can you forgive me? And I said, Mom, I've already forgiven you like dozens of times. The last time I had talked to her was right before I got married. And I had called her because there was this thing in my life, this unforgiveness that I was like, okay, I got to deal with this. And I extended forgiveness to my mom years earlier. And before that, though, I tried and I just couldn't quite do it. Before that, I remember a phone call I had when I was 16, 15, with my mom when she called and she, she said all these things. And she said, hey, tell your, brother, tell your brothers that they can call any time. I said, well, just so you know, I'll tell them, but you're never going to hear from me. And that was the relationship I had with my mom. And so I get this text years later after God has done something in my life to change the, not just the trajectory but the condition of my soul. I say, okay, Mom, let's, let's talk. And we start talking. And I said, hey, I, I think I want to come see you. I'd like to come see you. Which was another kind of big risk because last time I said I'd like to come see you, she, she called last minute and said, don't come, don't come, don't come. You can't come. So I want to come see you. And so I got ready. I, I, I got a picture like that Christmas card of my family and I put it inside of a card and I, all I wrote on it is, you're forgiven. And I was like, okay, I'll get this card, and I got all the flowers, and I'm okay, let's, let's go. And the day came where I was supposed to go see her, and she didn't answer her phone. Okay, it was about an hour and a half drive away. Okay, I got my youngest with me. My wife didn't come. Dylan at the time, he's not my youngest. He was my only one at the time. Sitting in the back, and he's, he doesn't know what's going on. I'm just like, we're going to find a park. We're going to meet mom, my mom there, and who knows how this will go. But as I'm driving, I'm like, this is there's a part of me that goes, I know this isn't going to work out. It's just not going to happen. And then there's this other part of me that was like, it's going to work out. Like, this will be the time. This is like the moment. This, I'm going to seize this moment. It's going to change everything. And I had this vision in my head of like this movie kind of thing happening where like two people run across the field to each other, right? And they see each other and they're running through like sunflowers. And they embrace and there's tears and there's forgiveness. Like, that's what I'm like, this is going to, this is going to be really powerful, 
So I get to this park, and there's a, a picnic table, a pavilion in the center, and I kind of sat there for a little bit. I let Evan or Dylan play on, on the swings and play on the slide, and he's getting mulch in his shoes, and I'm looking all over the place, and I'm kind of going, oh, it looks like it might rain. I don't know. Maybe it won't rain. It's okay. You know, I'll just sit here. And I'd see people coming around the corner from different places. like, is that her? Is that her? Is that her? I mean, I hadn't seen her for over 20 years at that point. But I knew what she looked like. I checked the website that she'd said she went through rehab, and I saw her face. I saw her picture. I knew what she looked like. I tried to see, was that her coming? Not coming. And I sit there, and I sat there, and I sat there. She didn't show up. And I had this like moment where I was like, okay, I'm just going to leave this card on the table and I'll call her and tell her I left it there. And I'm like walking away and I was like, it would be so perfect right now if it just started raining because that's how it felt. Like the, of these clouds, it just felt like they were dark and they were just going to pour down on us. It didn't rain. I got in the car. I'm driving away. I'll never forget. Driving away and all this pain. You have no value. You're worthless. You're abandoned. You're an orphan. She doesn't care. She's an alcoholic. She didn't care last time. She still doesn't care now. You're not worth it. All this pain comes rushing in at me again. Years and years. And I thought, oh, I've already dealt with this. I'm good to go. I'm extending forgiveness. Stepping into this moment, God, you called me, you asked me, I'm doing what you asked me to do. This is the moment. Simultaneously, God's love showed up. He said, you are loved. You are worthwhile. You are valuable. You're my child, and you're good, and I have you, and I'm with you, and I'll always be with you. So I thought I was stepping into a divine moment that my uniqueness was going to change the trajectory of some other life. And the trajectory of my life didn't change, but the condition of my soul changed forever. And everything from that moment on was redefined to something I never would have believed before. It wasn't pain and hurt. It was sadness and sorrow for my mom. It was empathy. It was understanding. It was compassion. Everything changed in all those moments along the way. And now from everything out, I will never be the same. See, the full life, the, the true life that's really life doesn't come from the chronic rushed and rushed, just hope you don't die too young, have to life. It comes from seeing and living in and starting to embrace and be embraced by the moments when our time intersects with God's time. I want to have um, you guys just respond, uh, a chance to respond on your own. Here's how this moment will go. Uh, Barb and a few others are going to hand out some, some index cards and some pencils. And I just, I just encourage you to write down a name, a place, a phrase, a symbol, something that you're kind of asking what maybe the people were asking in Esther's story. God, where are you? What's that thing in your life that you're saying, God, I, I want you to show up, 
I'm looking for you. I, I need to see some of your activity in this thing that's happening in my life because I just, I don't know if you're there. So just write that thing, God, this is the thing that I, I want to see what you're up to. And then just come clip it, either on the slinky or on the, the wire. And throughout the weekend, whatever that thing is, you don't have to, you keep it anonymous, but whatever that thing is, there's going to be a team of people praying over that thing that you're saying, God, I, I want you to show up. I'm looking for you to show up. I'm looking to see what you're up to in my life that I just don't see right now. Does that make sense? Can you give me a nod if that makes sense? Okay. So we'll get, play some music softly for a little bit, and then you'll have a chance to do that, and then go back to your seats when you're ready, uh, or come up when you're ready. I'll get you some more clips, and then have a seat, and Pete will come up in a little bit.